Well, good morning. Why don't you uh, join me this morning as, uh, as we start in prayer. Father, I pray that you help us to prepare our hearts now. As we open your word, Lord, we know there's power there. We know that you are the source of that power. Lord, I give you this message um, as a sacrifice of my time, but Lord, I pray that you translate it into the hearts of those in the way that you would desire it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in case you didn't know, if you were to uh, walk into the Congressional Library, and one of the buildings there, it's the Jefferson Building, there are eight large statues that can be seen above giant marble columns, and they represent um, a group of different civilized life or thought And uh, they represent things like philosophy, art, history, commerce, religion, science, law, and poetry. Above each of those statues is a tablet that bears an inscription. And it's in gold letters, and each of those represent kind of a summary statement for those areas. And they were chosen by Harvard University President Charles Eliot at the time. And above the figure of religion, it says this, What does the Lord require of thee? but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Holy Bible, Micah 6, 8. Now we've been studying the book of Micah for a number of weeks now. We just came off of chapter 5 where we heard about um, the coming Messiah, how it was prophesied in Micah 5, 2 that a Messiah was coming, coming hope, a message of righteousness. And then we run headlong into chapter 6. And chapter 6 could be understood as a, as a book about remembering and redirection. Now, the prophet Micah lived in a small town, almost 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem, but he knew, or he seemed to understand, a lot about the corruption that was happening in the city of Jerusalem. He talked about the abuses in that capital city. He was a champion for the poor. He denounced the officials who were oppressing poor farmers. Inside the land, Micah saw chaos, and he cites several places where he saw it. For example, in the ancient world, land was a sacred inheritance. But the rich were stealing that land away from the poor, he says in, verses, in chapter 2, verses 1 and following. The leaders hated justice, it says in verse 3.9. Bribery was synonymous with politics, we see in 3.11. Micah despairs that the leaders tear the skin off my people and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a kettle. Chapter 3, verses 2 to 3. Now, Chapter 6 of the book of Micah is arguably the the most well-known chapter in all of Micah. It's certainly the most popularized of any chapter, and that's primarily because of the verse that I already read to you that was above that statue. But before we get to there, it's important to understand some things that lead up to that statement for Micah. So why don't you open up with me to the book of Micah, and we'll begin reading with chapter 6. You can follow along on the screens, or you can use the Pew Bibles, and it's on page 923. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I have brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, 
Remember what Balak king of Moab counseled and what Balaam son of Beor answered? Remember your journey from Shedem to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord? I want us to pause here a minute and to describe the scene. He's laid out in earlier chapters, in chapters 1 through 3 specifically, a lot about the abuses, the bribery, the oppression, the stealing, the false prophets. And now God comes to his people and states his case. Now you'll notice he does so, as it says, in full view of the mountains and the everlasting foundations. Now, why does he say that? He does that because in the minds of the people, the mountains had been around since the beginning of time. So the mountains had seen all the things that had happened. The mountains had seen the, uh, the original covenant as it was formed. And so it's only natural to present the case before them. They were witnesses before it all. So the case is laid out, and unfortunately, it doesn't look very good. The Lord presents his case, and he uses language, though, that represents and refers back to the covenantal relationship which is interesting because they're really, really hard words. And yet, he also says things like, my people. And he refers to himself as your God. So he's not completely separated himself from his people yet. They still represent his covenant people. And it's indicative of a tender rebuke. He then tells his people to answer him as it says, how have I burdened you? Answer me. Which, of course, causes them to think. But then he himself provides the answer by reminding them of what he's done for them. Far from burdening them, he's expressed his care for them many times in different ways and through different leaders and different mediators. And he refers to four specific examples of these righteous acts in verses 4 and 5. First, in verse 4, he redeems them from bondage of slavery in Egypt. Okay? Now, there's a wordplay here. Instead of, he says in verse 3, how have I burdened you? And verse 4, I brought you up. So essentially, the Lord is saying, I have not weighted you down. Instead, I've brought you up out of slavery into the settlement of the promised land. Now, the whole Exodus event is often cited in the Old Testament as the supreme example of God's grace, his love, his power, and his care for his people. And therefore, you'd think that they would respond with faith and faithfulness and obedience and love. But that's not the case. Second, he gave them competent human leaders. He refers here to Moses, who is the great lawgiver and the human founder of Israel. He refers to Aaron, who's the, highly priest, the high priestly mediator, and he refers to Miriam, a prophetess and a poet. Thirdly, he turns their enemies' curses into blessings. Now, he exhorts his people to remember what happened when King Balak wanted this prophet, Balaam, to pronounce a curse on Israel. So what is setting up here is, if you remember the story, you can read about in Numbers 22 through 24, Balak was surrounded by the nation of Israel. He sees the huge group of people coming toward him. And was, as was tradition for those days, the kings could call on different prophets and different magic individuals in their minds to be able to pronounce a curse on those that were coming against him. And so he does so, and he calls them forward, and he says to Balaam, come and pronounce a curse on all of these people. Well, Balaam seeks God about this and eventually agrees to go. And that's when you read about Balaam's donkey speaking to him as he goes along his way. He seeks God and eventually agrees to go, but only with the understanding that he can only say what God tells him to say. So Balak brings him to three different places and asks him to pronounce a curse. Now, I don't know how smart Balak was because I would have given up after number one because in each case he does the same thing. Balaam, 
goes before, sees the people. Balak says, curse them. He says, okay, I'll go seek God. He goes and seeks God. He comes back and he says, sorry, I can't, I can't curse them. Instead, I'm going to bless them. And so he does. And Balak picks them up, brings them to another place and says, hey, look at these people. Can you curse them? Same people, same message. Sorry, I'm going to not do that. Instead, he, curses, he uh, blesses them. And he does it a third time. And after that, frustrated, Balak finally says, I said I would honor you greatly, but behold, the Lord has held you back from honor. Balaam answered Balak, Did I not tell the, tell the messengers that you sent me? Even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold, I could not do anything contrary to the command of the Lord, either good or bad, of my own accord. What the Lord speaks, that I will speak. Which is a great example of faithfulness. And it's interesting because he talks about faithfulness throughout this passage and then uses this example specifically. Fourth, the Lord exhorts his people to remember how he brought them from the plains of Moab into Canaan. Now, Shedem was the Israel's last encampment east of the Jordan, and Gilgal was their first stop on the west side of the Jordan. And this is a reference to the miraculous crossing of that Jordan River, where God sent the ark with its bearers into the Jordan River, and when they did so, he held back the waters so that they could cross on dry land. God then tells them to go back into the river and grab 12 large stones and pile them up in Gilgal as a remembrance to his faithfulness. Now God cites all of these acts and he lays out his case and he makes it clear that the people's complaints cannot be directed toward him. I don't want us to rush too quickly on from this section. It's easy, I think, for us to hear some of these stories and go, yeah, I'm familiar with those stories. Let's move on. Let's get to the good stuff. What's the point for us? Well, let me encourage you. I want you to think about some way that you could come up with an, uh, a way that you can remember God's faithfulness in your own life. Not too long ago, not, uh, uh, several weeks ago, my small group of guys that we were together, we were talking about this verse. It was referenced in one of the studies that we were doing. And one of the questions at the back of that book was to list some different things that you have experienced about God. And so um, we did so, and then we, we just kind of answered that question. We were going to move on, and I said, wait a minute. I think this would be a great thing. Wouldn't it be to, to go around and listen to how God has touched each of our lives in some significant way? Because we learn things from one another as we begin to share how God has acted in each of our lives, don't we? And so we did that. We spent time and we heard different stories, some as early as the week earlier and some several years ago where God had, had done something through or in the life of those, those guys in our group. And so I left there and I went home and I talked to my wife and I said, Joe, we need to figure out a way to record the different ways that God has, has been faithful to us. We've got these different things that I had written down and she had different ways and we all had experienced different things and we thought, how can we do that? Well, one of the things that we came up with is sitting right here. Um, this is a, um, just a simple vase, and in the vase we put a bunch of rocks that you can get anywhere. But on these rocks, we um, have encouraged our kids, and we have done so, and we've um, began to put things on each of these rocks, symbolic of different things that have happened in our lives, where we can actually think back about these things and record them. And so now they sit in my entryway, 
as a visible, tangible example of God's faithfulness in our life. And this isn't something that's stagnant. This is something that's ongoing and growing. And so as God does things in our family and through our family in different ways, whether it's my son or my own life or different things that have happened to us, some great things, some things have broken our hearts, all of those things we can put onto a rock in some way, in some symbolic way, and add to this little thing and, and see it grow. And then as people walk in and out of our house, they can look at this and say, well, what's with the rocks, dude? And I can say, hey, this, this is how God has been faithful to us. Now, maybe that doesn't work for you. But I would encourage you to find some way. Maybe it's putting something up on your wall. Maybe it's by coming up with some kind of picture book or journal that you can um, somehow record the various things that God has done Because that's what God is encouraging them to do here, is to remember those things, and there's a reason for it. Now let's go back to the text. When we hear people's, we hear the people's response, because they'd seen the case in the first three chapters, they know what they've done, they've then seen how God has been faithful to them, and their response is, well, what should I come before the Lord with? Should I bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The worshipers here wonder whether an abundance of sacrifice, even sacrificing their firstborn children, would atone for their sins, which of course it wouldn't. It's clearly and expressly prohibited in Leviticus Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 18. You can't sacrifice your own children. Notice, though, there's no rebuke here against the acts themselves, the sacrificial acts themselves. They are, in fact, commanded of God's people. He describes in detail how they're supposed to be handled and what they're supposed to be done. But as you'll see, it's not the acts themselves that are the problem, but those religious acts when they're divorced from an attitude of the heart which should then be manifest through behavior toward others. So then, through Micah, the Lord now announces to Israel what he does require. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, verse 6-8 has become very popular. Many refer to it in a variety of ways. One commentator says, This is the quintessence of the commandments as the prophets understood them. I don't quite know what quintessence means, but I love the word, so I wanted to share it with you. Another one calls it the finest summary of the context of practical religion that can be found in the Old Testament. And still another says the rabbis who commented on this verse in the early centuries of the Christian era called it a one-line summary of the whole law. So what God is making clear here is that he does not desire ritual sacrifices. No, that's not what he's saying here. What God is making clear here is that he does not desire ritual sacrifices without evidence of a changed life. Now, he's revealed similar requirements in different passages throughout Scripture. Like in Deuteronomy 10, he says, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good? Now, in Micah, specifically, he talks about three main things in verse 8. First, they must act justly. Now, this action is not just about talking about justice. It's not just to get other people to act justly, but it means to do justice yourself. 
Now look in 3.9, if you look back, just go back a chapter here, a few chapters. And he says, hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel who despise justice and distort all that is right. Throughout Micah, he talks about the, the individual's despising of justice. And yet here he asks that we must act justly. And not just ourselves. Individually, I think in our culture, we can easily focus on our own individual needs and say, well, look, you know, I'm, I'm acting justly. But this message isn't just to individuals, it's to the people of Israel. And we think of our own verse. If anyone in uh, John 3.17, or 1 John 3.17, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be with him? So it's not just about what you do in your own life, but about what you see is happening around you. Second, they say that he must love mercy. Now, the Hebrew word that we translate for mercy or kindness here is called is hesed. And the word here refers to a benevolent attitude or action that is between individuals. It's empathy or identification with others. It's heartfelt affection. In the Bible, this same word often describes how God relates to us with loving kindness, feeling our suffering, and rejoicing in our rejoicing. And then thirdly, he says that we must walk humbly with our God. Now, walk here means to live in a certain way. But the Hebrew word for humbly is a little bit interesting because it's not the usual word for humility. And it probably doesn't actually mean humbly. The NIRV has probably the most accurate of any version. And it says, and you must be very careful to live the way your God wants you to. So walk humbly would be better rendered walk carefully with your God which ultimately means be careful to live the way your God wants you to. And this interpretation is backed up by Jesus himself. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says something where most people believe that this is a reference back to Micah 6, 8, where he says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law of Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. He doesn't say justice, mercy, and humility here. Here Jesus regards justice, mercy, and faithfulness as the more important matters of the law. And one of the ways that we can act faithfully as we talk about justice and mercy, we're not just talking about justice for justice' sake. Justice because we believe it's right falls short. Justice now is in light of the New Testament which in 5.2, Micah says there would be coming a Messiah. Well, this is the embodiment of that. The Messiah has come. So now as we act justly, we're doing so in light of the fact that Jesus has been and is here. And so we need to be able to share that in obedience. So when we talk about justice and we act justly and we love mercy, we're doing so, but we also have to share the reason for the hope that we have, which is Jesus Christ. So what then is Micah and the Lord's point? Well, one scholar summarizes it like this. This saying is not an invitation in place of the gospel to save oneself by kind acts of equity and fairness. Nor is it an attack on the forms of the sacrifices and cultic acts that are mentioned in the tabernacle and temple instructions. It was instead a call for the natural implications of truly forgiven men and women to demonstrate the reality of that faith by living it out in the marketplace. 
So live, such living would be accompanied by acts of deeds of right of mercy, justice, and giving of oneself for the orphan, the widow, and the poor. So what the Lord wanted here, most of all, was not these sacrifices, but was obedience to doing and responding. They offer everything, even their firstborn, but not the one thing that the Lord wants of them, which is their heart. This same passage is basically it's very similar in other passages. Look in 1 Samuel 15:22. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Or in Hosea 6, 6, he says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than the burnt offerings. And Zechariah 7 Verses 8 to 10, after reciting the the fasts and the rituals that the people and the priests had done, he says, And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of one another. Okay, so we see all of these things. Wouldn't it be easy for us to dismiss some of that and say, you know, I don't know the last time that I have offered a sacrifice. And so does it apply? I can't remember the last time I've done that. But do we have our own ways to do ritualistic things in our life, things that we think are the right religious things to do? Last week we were spending time with one of the young ladies in Teen Challenge, and I'm going to call her Lisa, though that's not her name. She's now in level four of the program of Teen Challenge and working toward graduation in a few months. In the course of our conversation, I brought up these concepts of justice and mercy, and I asked her, with all that she had been through, if she could think of any examples of people who had either shown her great justice and mercy or shown her the opposite of that. And immediately her face lit up as she told the story of Doreen. Doreen leads a ministry by the name of Butterfly House. Now think about that for a minute. What is the heart of an organization like that has the name Butterfly House? It was easy for our friend to go on and on about how she didn't understand why this woman had shown her so much love. She'd heard about Doreen's program while she was in treatment, and when she came out, she decided to call her. Doreen asked if she had any place to go that night, and she said, well, Lisa said she could go back to the crack house that she'd been staying in before going into treatment. Doreen told her to come not even to stop there for a pair of clothes. She would take care of everything, so Lisa came to the house. But before 30 days were up, she had gone back to using, so she had to leave the program. But Doreen did what she could to find her a safe place. After the allotted waiting period, Lisa again asked to come back, and she was allowed back in. Again, she went back to using. Again, she was removed, but always she was kept within contact and sight of the program. Doreen has traveled now over several states coming after Lisa at different times, sometimes allowing her to stay in her own home, sometimes finding friends to help her out, all the time not focusing on the mistakes that she's made, but on the potential for who she could become. Now, Lisa also shared with me another story. In one of her difficult times, she found her way into the local gospel mission. This was an extended care program where she was offered housing, food, and she was seeking a job. And after about a week, the director came to her and told her that she could no longer stay in the program. 
Lisa was shocked. She had obeyed all the rules of the house, and she had not used drugs or alcohol. She had remained clean. And when she asked why, she was told by that director that she didn't see her as Christian material. It didn't appear to this director that Lisa had any desire to become a born-again Christian, and if she wasn't interested in that, then she could not stay there. So she asked Lisa where she had to go, that she could go. Lisa had nowhere that she could go except that same crack house, and with that, the director actually drove her back to the crack house where she was surrounded by the same influences that she was seeking to get away from. Now, as I tell those stories and I read Micah 6, I see two different contrasting ideas of justice and mercy, both believing that they were doing right, both believing so with good hearts. But I'll let you decide which is closer to Micah 6 and Jesus' words in Matthew 23. We all have our own idea of what is just and what isn't. And we can take this verse and use it for our own desires, obviously saying to other people that God, that our position is just because it's in line with God's teaching. But we don't know that. What we do know is that God specifically calls out the lonely, the oppressed, the widow, the homeless, the alien, those that are in need. And he says that we must respond in love. And if it is not with love, it is useless. Now, while it is hard to know what's just and what isn't, we can see what it, what it is not in some cases. I'm going to want you to look at John 8 and how the law and justice was displayed by Jesus. Many of us know the story. But when Jesus was in the temple courts where all the people were gathered around him, he sat down to teach them. And the teachers, teachers of the law and the prophets brought a woman who was caught in adultery, in adultery before him. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? Now I stop there for a minute because when I think of this, and I look at this and I think to myself, okay, these are people that brought a woman before Jesus with the intent of picking up a rock and throwing it into her with the intention of killing her. What must be in the heart of a person to pick up a stone and to throw it into somebody with the intention of killing her? In this case, is it the thought that, how dare you? How dare you do such a horrible thing? And you get all angry and you pick up the, the rock of anger and you throw it into somebody else. Or maybe you pick up a rock and you think to yourself, they deserve this. And you pick up the rock of punishment and you take it and you throw it into somebody else. Or maybe you pick up the rock of comparison and you say, I could never do that. And so therefore, this is deserved. And I'm going to take this rock of comparison and I'm going to throw it into somebody else. Now, maybe those aren't the ones that you pick up. Maybe your rock is the rock of hatred or the rock of control, or the rock of judgment. How does Jesus handle it? I love how Jesus handles this. He straightens up and he says, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone at her. 
At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. And after a while, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she says. Well, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Was there justice there? Go now and leave your life of sin. That's not allowed. But is there mercy there? What Jesus does is he says that we must look at our own failings, our own need for justice and our own need for mercy before we quickly pass that judgment on to others. We need to get close enough to the relationships that we're speaking about. Then get an understanding about their plight and their situations before we cast our own stones. But that requires us to get a little messy, doesn't it? A couple of weeks ago, I was sitting in a homeless shelter in Rockford, Illinois, and I was sitting across from individuals because as we were looking at the shelter and we were talking to the people, different people would walk in and sit down. And one of the individuals there was Michael, and he sat down and he was so excited because he sat there across and he said, I just got a job and all I need is a pair of steel toe boots in order to get in there and I don't have them. And we were able to help him out. But he said, I, know, I also don't have any really way to get there. It's a little bit, it's far across town. I'll do anything I need to do to get there, but I need, need some help. And we were able to give him some bus tokens. When he left, another individual by the name of Edward came in. And Edward was wearing a, a bunch of extra clothes. Um, he is an older gentleman. He had no teeth. And he brought with him a certain smell. And he sat in that closed office. And as we talked to him, we learned that he's trying his hardest but he couldn't meet any of the goals that we had talked to him about last time we met with him. One of the main things was getting identification, and he couldn't get his ID. And we said, well, why can't you get your ID? Well, he says, well, I don't have anything. When you think about that for a minute, he doesn't have his birth certificate. He doesn't have a Social Security card. He can't go somewhere and, say, and they say, well, okay, I'll give you your ID. You just need to show me proof of who you are. Well, I don't have any proof of who I am. He has no identification, so he can't get a birth certificate. And he can't get a birth certificate, so he can't get identification. And this circle just keeps him in that situation over and over and over again. Now, what those situations and others like it do for me is that they allow me to, to wrestle a little bit with my concept of justice. So homelessness isn't just the guy who's standing in the corner when I stop at the stoplight downtown. Homeless is Diane. Homelessness is Edward. Homelessness is Michael, who I've sat across from and I've spoken to and I've worked with and I've walked out with my arm around them or who I've prayed with. It's hard to know what just is. But I do know this. When Jesus left, he said that he would be leaving us a helper and a guide that would be with us. Now, we can debate in our heads all day long what is just and what isn't. Some people do that and they make a lot of good money doing it. However, much of that goes by the wayside when you're sitting in a situation across from a person whom God loves and asks you to do the same. It's then that the Holy Spirit is given a chance to speak directly into your heart. Does this mean that we leave our heads out of these decisions? Absolutely not. There are good ways to help people and there are horrible ways to help people. So we need to keep our heads in the game, but we need to respond to what the Holy Spirit is telling us to do. But we need to also allow ourselves a glimpse into the life of reality and the life of injustice. I'm going to give you a glimpse of that right now.
வீட்டுக்கு வந்தாங்க சார் இல்ல சார் The police is in the custody shooting at me. I was shocked. I thought that now that is there. At tumisa ka nang pakwanan nitong mga bisita ka nang mga customer. Wow, mahadlok ni kay upa man ay bitaw mi ka nang sanay jud nga ingala jud nga trabaho og amo ang kuhaton. NBC News in-depth tonight, a rare glimpse into a world both horrible and heartbreaking. Here is some of what NBC's Chris Hansen has uncovered in a Dateline NBC investigation. Poverty is no excuse for forcing children into prostitution, says Gary Haugen, who runs a U.S.-based human rights group, International Justice Mission. International Justice Mission. The International Justice Mission. International Justice Mission. The International Justice Mission. At IJM, we, we do have this confrontation with this, this horrific phenomenon of evil and violence and injustice in the world. And people who are being horrifically abused, whose lives are on the line, whose basic dignity is being crushed. Gary Haugen is an American lawyer who has now devoted his career to rescuing children from illegal bondage. Sometimes you just need to go to the places of need, where people need an advocate. People need someone to bring to bear the law on their behalf. So if you actually want to eradicate the forced labor system, holding perpetrators accountable is absolutely important. Our hope is that these victims will feel safe and don't have to worry about um, the immediate fears that they have. And second thing is that we really want a transformation of their lives despite of the trauma or the experiences that they have gone through in their lives. God knows what their future will be. Let's rule out this impact that we are having by rescuing children out of those dark evil places and seeing them mature and grow, be educated and be free. The most inspiring thing I get to do with my life these days is get to go see my colleagues at work in their own countries around the world. They're the ones who are taking the risks to infiltrate slave rings or sex trafficking operations or violent places where people are being abused. They're the ones that actually work with the authorities to, to bring rescue. My colleagues who end up resurrecting these children who, when we first find them, are just in a fetal position of abuse and then are just resurrected to, to life and joy and a future. It's an opportunity to do something wonderful, an opportunity to do something that takes risks. It's a struggle that matters. The International Justice Mission is just one example of organizations all over the place who are dealing with the issues of injustice. And I would encourage you to either invest in something like that, get engaged in some way. And if you don't know where to get engaged, come and talk to me. Micah tells the people that if they remember, and if we remember our experiences with God, how he has acted on our behalf, and how desperately we needed and still need him, that we should be able, unable to look at things like this in this video and, be, and not be prompted by it and not respond to these realities and just sit by.
So what can we do? I'm going to give you three action steps. Number one is to sit down with your family or a friend and come up with your understanding of what God has done for your life. Write down a list, talk to one another about it, and then find some way to memorialize those things in your home. Number two, think of the ways in which you seek to please God with religious practices. Now, God encourages us to do those things. There's nothing wrong in and of them, in and of those things in themselves. However, God calls us through Micah 6 to ensure that any of those practices not be divorced from the heart that God has for his people. And number three, to make a commitment during this season of Lent, leading up to the celebration of Easter, that before we get to that great celebration, that you will find one way to get messy. Do something that allows you to experience justice, mercy, or your humble obedience to God. Micah 6 calls us to remember God's faithfulness, not to get bogged down in religious practices, and to act justly, love mercy, and humbly follow our God. Micah was speaking to a people that daily looked at injustice and did nothing. They believed that their following of the law made them right. They missed the point. Let's us not do the same. Don't look away. Don't avoid the uncomfortable. Allow the Holy Spirit to bring you to tears and then do something about it. Do something in response and in obedience to his call. Amen.